0: Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBTQ plus experience. Hi, Khalid. Welcome to Bammer and Me. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us. It's really been a pleasure getting to know you these last few months.
1: How's it going? (laughs) Thank you for having me, I guess.
0: You know, when I first heard your story, I just, it's such an interesting one and obviously even an ordeal at times. And I just felt it was something that we needed to share with our audience because there's so many lessons that can be learned from your life. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
1: Growing up for me would have to be defined in stages. It's more of where were you born? I was born in Somalia. We left when I was five and moved to Kenya. I was there for almost nine years. Let's start off
0: with the Somalian experience. Mm -hmm. I think from what I recall, not so
1: bad. Both of my parents were educated. My father was an engineer. My mother was a school teacher. And to be quite frankly, from what I can recall, I think I would say it was something more of a middle class family. I don't recall our house being bigger than everyone else's house on the block. I don't recall it being smaller. It was somewhat peaceful, amazing. And the civil war broke out and we had to all flee. And that is what subsequently led me to come into the United States. But yeah, I remember we fled in the middle of the night. We weren't much of We were being told the militia or whatever were on their way, from what I can recall. So that meant that if there were a few towns away... The opposition? Yes. This is the time for you to run, so to speak. And you would pack up everything and go. One of the things that I remember very well was that We had to be coached on the way. You can't just go about saying and no. You had to assume an identity based on every region you crossed over. You know, as now you crossed over this region, if we were ever to be stopped, we had to say, oh, we belong to the same tribe as you guys to avoid persecution. I remember the boys being dressed as little girls in a way That way, they wouldn't be taken by the opposition or whoever and taken as soldiers or whatever.
0: Because boys were more likely to be taken than girls. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, boys were more likely. Girls were seen as weak and no use for them, so to speak. So they would put them in drag or whatever. So that was probably... Come to think of it, now my first experience was a drag show, so <laughs> it was fleeing war. So, <laughs> how long so, yeah. did it take
0: you? To, how long did it take you to get from where? You, were you in the capital of Somalia? No, no, we weren't in the capital.
1: From what my recollection was, we were in a town that was, I'd say, maybe two hundred kilometers. Now, looking at it, no, we had to go ways and around and depend and rely on the radio to hear where the militia was and avoid them. So what would have maybe taken seven, eight hour drive took us three days to get to Kenya. And the crossing of the Kenyan border, which was at the Northern part of Kenya, we had to wait for days in order to be able to slowly cross in. And we got to the camp and-
0: Refugee camp, right?
1: So that is where I was from the end of 1991 to maybe to the end of 1998 because we came here in January 1999.
0: And so what was life in a refugee camp in Kenya?
1: It was to me, at that point I was what five, six years old to the time I was 13, 14. People always ask me, was it traumatic? Was it wild? Was it Awful looking back at it now, seeing the amenities that I have, yeah, that was absolutely wild. But at that time, did I think it was wild? No, that was basically what it was. It was, you mean, you mean um, the
0: deprivation or what was wild?
1: Like how you went by with the bare minimum, you didn't have much, so to speak, you know what I mean. But that was the only life I knew. I didn't have an example of what perfection was. So at that time, I think that was pretty normal and OK. Until you come to a better place, can you objectively look back and say, OK, that we really didn't have much back then.
0: So then how did you get yes.
1: out? The process of asylum into the United States, is, it was a very long process at that time. I think there's two different ways. Now, if you were sponsored by someone who was in the United States, the process was faster, but because we didn't have someone to sponsor us, we had to wait for an organization or whatever that was at that time. So you go through several stages. People in the United States just assume that, okay, a lot of Americans just assume that, okay, someone just says, oh, I'm a refugee. And the next thing they see is a plane landing and then grabbing them. No. It's a process that takes at least five, six years, you know, seven years at some point because you have to go through a screening, a pre-screening, a big interview, and then you have to go through a lot of health screenings and then you have to get your fingerprints. And then you had a period of a month where you had to learn about the United States and you had videos they were teaching you about Things. So all those things didn't happen when you came to the United States. They happened back. So that was what kind of took five or six years off. But we were going to school. They had a school for kids. And so we went there. And we eventually came to the United States and Minneapolis. And we were there. Our family still there to now.
0: Let's hold up a second. You've omitted one major fact. How many were in your family when you left Somalia and how many were in your family when you arrived in Kenya?
1: Oh, well, I have six biological siblings on the way from Somalia to Kenya. We went through these little small towns that were being set ablaze. We ran into this little town. So what used to happen at that time from my recollection was that we would always stop by a small town. And go through what people left, like food. That's how we were able to find food and water. Like they didn't have convenience stores where you could, or what do you call truck stop? No, that's not what happened.
0: Like you mean the people had already abandoned those towns?
1: Yes. So that was what was happening. Now the best idea was to always wait for the militia to go through. And then you drive behind them because being ahead of them meant that you may be in jeopardy of being killed. So you have to wait, hide and let them pass by. And then you go after. So whenever they ambushed a town, the people who were fleeing, like us, would come through the town. That's how we were basically able to find food. We, my mom found small kids that were like at the age of, I'm assuming three, four, five, six. The oldest was around seven and eight. Now, I'm saying around because these kids were too young to know their own birthdays and what year they were born. So everything we know about their birth date is hearsay, so to speak.
0: And they had been separated from their parents by the violence.
1: Yes, yes, they were separated. So the idea was, um, let's just take them with us and because we were like a whole caravan of people traveling. I was like, let's just take them with us, and when we get to safety, we'll just, because then how could you leave kids four or five like that young? So by the time we came to Kenya, it was 30, seven more kids, so 13 kids all in general, and they eventually ended up being a part of our family. We never found their parents. We came to the United States. They were still under the guardianship at that time. And by the time we were becoming, we became citizens. They had to have been legally adopted, or they couldn't. I think that was what the immigration law was at that time. So I'm not really sure what it was, but we and you mean, legally adopt
0: them under the U.S. adoption rules. Or under yeah, after- yeah,
1: yeah. So you cannot adopt anyone while still in transition or as an asylum or in refugee because you yourself don't have legal status. You know what I mean? Um, so or you don't have some kind of a legal ground like what judge would assign you adoption if you're still in a refugee camp you know what i mean mm-hmm. so that's what happened so they came here with us still very close they are part of our family they have our same last name as we do they a couple of them ended up finding their own family members through the whole dna thing a few years back but it was quite the journey to even get there um, one of them was Worried a lot about the health, I'd assume, rightfully, because I want to know what I have a predisposition to, so to speak. Yeah. So that's how it all happened.
0: So suddenly you arrive in the U.S. What was that, 1999? Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was
1: a shock because we came in the middle of winter. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> From an equatorial or near equatorial country.
1: And humid, this yeah. straight winter. And this is, you don't have anyone who prepares like a homecoming. No. <laughs>
0: we,
1: <laughs> so we went into an apartment, and I remember a lady from the church came and brought some stuff over. And you know, we got a lot of coats and boots. It was a lot, it was super weird at that time. Like, I'm like, okay, how do we do this? Go to school was brutal because it was very cold in the morning and nobody told us that winter was not going to last because we didn't know anything about seasons. My assumption was this was going to be life for the rest of the year. <laughs> oh my God. So I had already preset my mind to, okay, as soon as I'm done with whatever this is, I'm definitely moving out of town and going away. So And, it was... and
0: how was your English at that point?
1: It was zero, literally zero. We had to take ESL classes and learn a lot. It was very different, to be honest. I and mean, exciting.
0: Get, were you bullied exciting. or harassed because you were from... No. Out, no? It's unusual in U.S. middle schools and high schools. There's a lot of harassing people who are different. Well,
1: here's the thing. like There are a lot of an influx of refugees in Minneapolis at that time, the schools we went to had a system set up and there were like a lot of other kids. And mostly because at that time, the school was more so geared towards ESL. We didn't have a lot of outsiders. Like bullying is something that would happen in a traditional, either a suburban school or normal American school where this is foreign to me now as you go on to high school when you finally get assimilated into the general public okay yeah they're definitely going to be crazy things but you won't be bullied because of how you look or how you spoke only because everyone over there was from the same neighborhood and literally we all have accents and look
0: for those who aren't aware esl is english as a second language but, minneapolis is really being a beacon for a large community of Somalian refugees.
1: Not just Somalia. Prior to that, it was a huge, I don't know how to say the name right. Yes. From Vietnam
0: and Cambodia.
1: Yes. So there's a huge population of that. So I'm assuming it must have been a safe haven for them in the 80s or 90s. But as the Minneapolis has always been welcoming i guess maybe that's probably for a lot of americans they always ask why minneapolis and one of the answers would always be because there was already an infrastructure set up there that kind of helps and they have a history of people going there and eventually making something out of themselves and you know so it's not a crazy idea of, of dropping someone in the middle of, of let's say San Francisco, one of the things they look at is job availability, you know, like what's available. But yet, then again, when a lot of refugees end up getting the green card, a permanent residency, the first thing they do is move to where there's an infrastructure set up for them. Like they would always move to either Minneapolis or Columbus, Ohio, because you don't have to be alone in iowa or you don't have to be alone in idaho you can go and be with other somalians in minnesota where you have a stores and you know restaurants that's the funny thing about somalians is the first thing they would always ask you is if you tell them i'm moving to a different city they'll ask you is there a somalian restaurant there you're like okay (laughs) it's more to life than a somalian restaurant but I guess that's how we feel a connection to a place is yes. so stuff that we're used to seeing.
0: So walk me through, you're now in high school, you're maybe mm. four, 14, 15 years old. Mm. And I believe that's when you first started to have some sense that you might be attracted to, to men and might be different. Is that correct? Yes. How had that? Oh, well, there
1: was. A, you always felt that even at a younger age. Them. I don't know about everyone else. There was that attraction that you felt different. Knowing the whole thing starts by knowing that you're different, you know, and want to know that you're different. I've never been the type of person to look at myself differently. So it was more of, OK, well, this is how I feel. Obviously, I'm not attracted to the opposite sex. So we'll have to figure out what it is that I am. I knew what my attraction was. I knew what I would always be interested in looking at. And so it wasn't that I didn't know what homosexuality was. I knew what it obviously was. But now the issue that you struggle with mostly is how to get to that point where you identify with someone or something. So I wonder how do I get there? You know, how do I get from being confused to eventually being confident enough to say this is who I am.
0: I had asked you if perhaps you had crushes on some of your peers. Oh, of
1: course.
0: But I recall you telling me no that you kind of figured it out more by who you were attracted to in the media.
1: Well, yeah, and that's what I remember when I earlier told you. Okay, I knew who I was by just what I was attracted to looking at. You know what I mean? A lot of people would always look at the Paula Abdul's of the world and the Janet Jackson's of the world. And to me, they were just people like I didn't see the beauty, the attraction that everybody else saw in them. I mostly would watch for the art and what they were doing or the songs like I was. But no, I would. Obviously, go to the grocery stores and look at the underwear boxes, and that was step one of kind of (laughs) (laughs) your education. (laughs) Yes, that is literally the introduction into who you are. Now, (laughs) when you go there, you always see a kid looking at those boxes funny, and you're like, okay, (laughs) you have a long way coming. (laughs) So, So that is how eventually things ended up.
0: So, you also told me, if I recall, you were smack dab in the middle of the 13 kids in terms of age. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I am the deciding vote. I am the seventh in chronological order.
0: How does one get attention from parents in the middle of 13 kids? Having a
1: big kid, like a big family where I'm from at that time Now, it may be a little bit different, but back then, that was very normal. My dad came from a family where he had, I'm assuming, he once said nine or 12 step-siblings. Yeah. So, people marrying four wives was not an uncommon thing in Somalia. Super common, very... So, it wasn't different. You only thought it was different when you came to the united states and everyone has a one child and two babies and that's about it and you're like okay well yes we're totally different i was always lost i don't know how many times i went to the fair and they forgot me there like they would all go to the mall and nobody would remember where i was you know so it was it was a challenge, but I never saw it as challenge. I just thought it was very different and Interesting. Like why are you guys always losing track of me? And <laughs> the habit didn't quite stop there. It's still prevalent even today. You know, when we message each other and I'm in a group chat and they could be talking about me and not notice that I'm there. and I'm like, Hey, hey, I'm here and they're like, Oh it's always it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting dynamic. I never got upset about it, though. So
0: Yeah, you have a lot of equanimity for someone that's been through so much. So the next question. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what is a common occurrence in Somalian refugee families when parents have the talk with, I don't know if it's their sons or all of their children and, and how that happened to you.
1: Oh, we don't. <laughs> Conservative communities never talk about sex. Sex is completely off the table. People just grow up to get married and eventually they assume you find out everything the first night. If that <laughs> is your first night. Well, I'm, I'm referring
0: more to the talk that they had with you about before you date someone, you need to let us know
1: so we. Well, here's the. Th- There were a lot of issues to where people didn't know who they were at at some point. Like there were a lot of, um, like at that time, a lot of people didn't know who their relatives were. You know, you have to know if you didn't want to date, like someone, you don't want to find out that this is your cousin that you're dating and stuff like that. So there was steps and processes into trying to eventually identify who the person was to avoid issues now moving forward in certain parts of somalian culture marrying someone who is a first cousin or second or third cousin wasn't a very shunned upon thing like it happened quite often like keeping in the family and it's not even the somalian culture it's i think in most islamic world they don't see a problem with that So, Um, so
0: incest is not considered an issue.
1: you can't only you cannot marry a sibling or a first cousin, but maybe a third or fourth cousin removed, I'm assuming is fine. But as the world went on, people have opened their eyes and have seen that, you know, they, there's a world outside of marrying within the family. But yeah, so they had to back in the days to tell them, especially for someone like my siblings who didn't know who they were or who their parents were. And so it was more of, OK, you know, we have to make sure what you're doing is not insensuous or whatever, so they had to do that. They did that a lot with anybody they tried to date for most of them. I never went through that process because hey, it would have never even <laughs> it would have been a non-starter.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you, to you told them. me that when your parents sat you down, what did you tell them? Uh, about, about, you mean coming out because you and I have had
1: several conversations yeah. and I've had several Actually, I kind of already had a hint in knew because, A, I didn't just come out right out of high school, No, no, I moved out and moved to a different state for college and undergrad and came back a year or two for Thanksgiving and that was when I decided to tell them. But there was a bigger issue at that point in our family. One of my siblings was getting engaged, a vegan and meat eating is so big in alcohol if you're not eating goat for lunch <laughs> and dinner so yeah i mean i told my mom and she looked at me like well i already knew but your sister's marrying a vegan this is bigger than you i don't even understand well
0: she had more of an issue with a vegan than with a homosexual son from my assumption that was what it was at that time only because how would it look
1: serving a vegan meal at a Somalian wedding? That would have been a tragedy. Basically, she was way more offended with this whole vegan story than my story. So I'm like, okay, like, no, this is in about you. Start making everything about you. I'm like, I've never made anything about me. So she was like, ah. But then as the years went on, I asked her again, like, that wasn't the reaction I was expecting. She was, she was just more of, what do you want me to say or do about you know, what you're going to do in your bedroom? I have control, you know, a wedding menu. I don't have a control over what happens in your bedroom. So well, you I'm told
0: not. me, and perhaps I yeah heard, heard wrong, but when, that, uh-huh. that you, you, they had to talk with you. You more or less said, that's not going to be an issue with me, which was implying that...
1: Yeah. There would always sit you down and discuss more about sex. And now here's the thing. Now discussing sex and sexual things and who you should date to them was, looking back at it now, it wasn't more of we're doing this as a sex education thing. Like now when parents sit down and talk, they tell you where, about the birds and the bees. No, this wasn't about that to them at that point. It was more about being careful about or trusting or marrying or having sexual intercourse with someone of a different race. Does that make sense? Yeah. We had several talks and it was more of like, let's sit down or it always came up a lot of time and my answer was always oh you probably wouldn't have to worry more so about that with me because that was never going to ever be an issue only because hey i'm never going to bring a white girl home or get her pregnant or bring shame to the family and i was just talking to a friend of mine and he was like do you not understand the nuances of what they were trying to tell you I was like what do you mean and he was like the talk they were trying to have you wasn't something that was more so related to you bringing a girl home or doing this maybe they noticed something about you and this was the talk that they were trying to tell you not to bring shame to the family Uh. You know what I'm spoke. So I'm still foggy about the whole thing. I think enough time has passed. Took it for what it was.
0: And you know. and yet you told me also that your parents came from different castes in yes. the Ethiopian society and married against the wishes of their parents. Right. So the combination that they were, if you will, rebelling and they were both educated all that made it really hard for them to reject you the way maybe a lot of Somalian families would have rejected their kid for coming out. So that's-
1: it's extremely fun. And what's so unfortunate is, till date, that system is still in place. You cannot marry someone of a different tribe. Why? 30 years has gone by, and there still isn't any peace. What's going on in my home country is that 30-year-old civil war. I think just January day, it just turned 31. And that is a problem that's still persistent in our community whereby you cannot do this. Certain casts and certain people were looked at differently. He had an arranged like a pre-setup met- situation set up for him. And it was more of okay, you cannot marry into this. Crossing of caste lines was always frowned upon. Yeah. And they did that. So it was Now, eventually, me telling them what I wind up a little bit took them back to where they were 20 years or 30 years prior to that. They weren't ever going to say, okay, well, this is not, we're never going to allow this to happen and whatnot. So that one made it easy for me to be upfront and honest about it. It was just they being open-minded about things and what was genuinely happening and there's also i didn't stay home right after high school i left
0: perhaps you should talk about a little bit because again my recollection is your mom basically told me it was probably advisable for you to go to college away from home is that true and well that is
1: very true at first i was the one who wanted to move. Uh, and my senior year, I said, okay, I'm definitely not going to be going to college instead. So when I told her, that wasn't the reaction I was expecting. I thought she was going to be overly dramatic because with the other ones, she didn't quite take it easy. One, at that time, one of my sis, older sisters was getting ready to apply for grad schools out of state. And she wasn't even going far. She was going to the University of Wisconsin, which was literally... A drive across state, so she took it hard. But then with me, she was very, how do I say, careless about it. like okay. But then I'm like, okay, wait, why did you not? And she like, no, no, it's best you go. Well, but that whole it's best you go. Away. Talk didn't happen till three, four years after you know. Like I you, right after moving, I sort of felt disconnected from everyone to where communication was somewhat limited to basic check-ins it wasn't a deeper communication so as the years went on to maybe four or five years almost my graduation is when we genuinely
0: started to talk and so why did she tell you that she was fine with well
1: one of the things was that it was for the reason of it's just best you go and find yourself be who you are going to a different state where nobody knows you. You know, you don't have any history there. You can start your life up let it be a rebirth as opposed to staying here and always living up to certain standards and to some degree, be depressed about things because when you live within a community where everyone or everything of this type is shunned upon, you know, you seem to Feel different
0: about yourself.
1: Yes, you see, kind up of be convinced that something is absolutely wrong with you. Now, what do you do at that point? Do you, because there have been a lot of cases where people ended up killed, um, suicide, genuinely not thriving to the level that they could have thrived. You know, given the opportunity and the freedom. Because a lot of people just assume okay you live here you have access to an x amount of resources but living under this weight of not being able to love freely hate freely and do what you want freely can be a very dark place to be in mentally
0: your mom knew that you had to go way in order to find yourself, not succumb to the pressures of the Somalian community around you.
1: Basically. Yeah, that was it. And at the point when I was leaving, I just thought it was way of them getting rid of. You don't see what people see. And sometimes I, I thought I was looking at things from what my expectations were at that point, because the examples that I had were people (laughs) being excommunicated and just moving and never so I already put them in that bracket of oh my god I'm getting excommunicated is this why yes about the whole thing
0: yeah. why don't we I, uh, jump ahead tell us where you ended up deciding to go to college how that happened and what that experience was like
1: oh well, I decided to go to the University of Kansas so that's where I went for my undergrad and that experience was Pretty good. Very different. I graduated from high school and immediately got on the road a day or two after, found a place, got a job, a good restaurant. I had some other little remedial jobs here and there, but I started off at a restaurant and started people at the front, that kind of seat.
0: This is in the summer before you begin?
1: Yes. I had so if, I, if I recall, you, you got a scholarship, I, yes? Yeah, I did. I did, but I had a lot of other jobs. Um, I did work at a beef processing plant at some point. um I did do a lot. The restaurant was one. I also did a lot of just the UPS place, but that was more of a seasonal thing, the postal services. Okay. But, yeah, so I... Eventually ended up graduating all the way from, you know, a, a line cook to a dishwasher that, to being the assistant chef. By the time I left that restaurant, and I loved that job. My undergrad was really good for me. I met someone. We dated. And were together for almost what seven, eight years, and I loved that life. I'm.
0: My memory is you majored in math and chemistry, and yes. you you were good enough at it that you were engaged by the football team to tutor a lot of their players. Is that correct?
1: Y- yeah, um, yes, I used to tutor a lot, so that was interesting. I enjoyed tutoring. I used to get a lot of scholarships about it. I had a good time. I mean, by the time I graduated college, I didn't have... Barely had student loans on debt from college or under, you know. So,
0: you basically I, paid for your education.
1: I literally hustled my way into it. So, <laughs> yes, I enjoyed it, really, really enjoyed it. But well,
0: I'm a little confused about something. I know that you met your partner a few days after you, arrived at school, and yeah. I thought I you told me what happened, and I thought that happened before graduation, but you're now saying you were together seven to eight years. Do you want to tell, tell us about
1: Now, the thing about it is you kind of know the steps of dating. Now, are you going to include those years where you weren't exclusive? Are you going to include the drive-by late-night hookups as a part of it? Or are you genuinely going to... Say the relationship started from the time we went on a date. You know what I'm mean? saying? So, yeah, because yeah. dating didn't happen till we got really comfortable to this point. A date didn't even make sense. We kind of have to go traditional about it. And he was it's the first person I met over there. So
0: it's a very gay, uh, you know, in the straight yes. world, you date, meet, and then have sex. In the gay world, more often than not, you have sex and then you decide if you're going to date, right?
1: And then, if now you become friends. You know, <laughs> you look at people, <laughs> look at a circle of friends, and find out that people have had sex with each other. That's not nice, but yeah, yeah. But that is um, how it. Is. So,
0: tell tell us how that unfortunately ended.
1: Oh, he had lymphoma. He had cancer. He didn't suffer, but also suffered quite a bit. I was very sad about it. it was a great love. I didn't complain or he didn't ever want for much he We were together until death so
0: how how old yeah. was he when, How old was he when he passed away and how long after graduation?
1: Yeah, it was at least three years after graduation yeah. so he passed he <laughs> yeah, so I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about it. But yes, he did have lymphoma. He died. It was quick. That's what I can remember. He didn't suffer much. Yeah.
0: You told me something that I found really interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You talked to me about your experience with death in Sopia and how that have, had affected you, and it might have, in some way made your relationship with death different than mine and a lot of other people. Do you want to describe your recovery if you will from that? Once
1: you get acquainted with death at the age of 5 by seeing dead people along the way, mm-hmm. there was a big breakout of cholera that used to happen a lot in the camps. Cholera, you know, cholera- in Kenya? Yeah. Yes, yeah. So it's typhoid and what To so many people, death uh, to some degree is something that should be very traumatic, and it should have been for me, but by the time I got into adulthood, it got so much a part of me, like it was just everywhere as a child, I mean, you were stepping over dead people, you know, you were running around, driving around dead people. Emotionally speaking, I think that sort of don't put a void or a hole in how I saw death from an emotional standpoint, because what it did was that it sort of normalized it to the point whereby it wasn't even a big deal. You're,
0: you're making it sound though like you didn't feel. My memory was you told me you were depressed for a year or so.
1: Oh, of course I was depressed. Was I depressed about the fact that he died? Depression, the depression was the fact that, um I never got to see him. And there was now, there are two ideas that, there are two ways I sort of separated it at that point was that someone died, you know what I mean, that I didn't know of, so there wasn't any emotional attachment to it. And then there's another side to the story of, okay, this really did humanize this, like it literally took someone that I cared and I loved a lot. It wasn't something that I could just go on and suppress any longer. or I can just be lackadaisical about it and just, you know, go about life. No depression hit. I gained so much weight from it. That was, I think, one of the first times that I genuinely felt that bad things have an effect on me. Because sometimes you go through life saying, oh. I've seen this when I was a child. I mean, it couldn't get any worse than this, but that literally shook me to the core. I mean, I was extremely depressed. I was sick. I was just, I just didn't care about my own life.
0: Kind of a a poignant place to maybe end our first interview and continue with the rest of your life to this point in the next one. But I just want to summarize for anybody listening and make sure that we got it right with you. you know, till five in Somalia, seven or eight years in a refugee camp In uh, four or five years in Minneapolis with a family who we didn't really talk about this, but you shared with me that when you graduated both right. from college and the grad school we'll talk about in our next step, none of your, none of your family was there with you, right?
1: Nope, nope, nope. So you've
0: basically been on your own path Pretty much, right. You, all your whole life, lost. <laughs> right. right. So there you are at 22 or whatever, graduating from right. college, losing a partner of several years, right. facing facing an unknown future, and yet you'd already been through more than most of us might experience in a lifetime.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say that everyone had their own.
0: Uh, all I know is mine doesn't compare to yours. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I mean, we, I've had my challenges, but. what you you faced in many ways was daunting and yet you've dealt with it with an an equilibrium that is kind of amazing thank you my pleasure and we'll end here thank you for the time it's been great uh, covering this part of your life and we'll continue in another episode soon thank you so much for listening This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Mateo Nikolov. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.